Well, good morning. It is always a blessing for us uh, to be together, especially on this day, as we think about uh, family, as, as we think about the, the families we're born into and also the families we get to be a part of, whether that's a spiritual family or, or whether that's friends that are like family. I, I look out and I see uh, some of you gathered together because not only of Mother's Day, but also because of ACU graduation last night. Uh, and I'm just thankful for all of you who are in this room this morning, those of you who are joining us online. Uh, it is always good for, for God's people to gather together around the throne of grace with confidence. Uh, it's it's a, a blessing that changes me every time I get to be a part of it, and I hope the same is true for you as well. Now, it, it is Mother's Day, and and yet, as I struggled with, okay, Knowing it was coming and thinking through, well, do I, I interrupt the series or do I, I stay with what we've been studying? I made the decision that, you know, it, I think it fits. This whole idea of, of, the, of the concept that we are, as God's people, always beginners. That we're always learning who it is that God wants us to be when we gather together as his people you know, that fits because my mother and the people in my life who have been like mothers to me, they're the folks who, who have loved me into being who I am and yet also have hope for me that I'm not done learning and growing yet. That, that my mom is one of those people who regularly will tell me, you know, don't act like you've arrived yet because you haven't. And she's able to say that in a way because she's my mother, I can hear it. I know that it comes from a place of, of compassion and hope that with all of the, the development, all the growth that I might have had as a follower of Christ, there's still more. And so I think this, this fits very well with the idea of what it means to be God's people on a day like Mother's Day. You know, there's a lot of things about our culture outside of church that, that breaks my heart. Things in our culture that I wish were different, but stopping for a day to, to rest our hearts on the gratefulness and the thanksgiving that we have because of the, the mother figures in our lives. That's something about our culture that I love. And it's something that I wish that we were able to do uh, more of. So we have, for the last month, we've been in this series where we're focusing on 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to that church in the ancient city of Corinth. And for four weeks, we've been in the four uh, chapters that open up that letter. And as is so often the case, when Paul writes a letter to a church, he spends the first handful of chapters really wading into some pretty deep waters when it comes to doctrine and theology. Because what Paul does in almost every single one of his letters is he wants to make sure that, that the Christians who are receiving that letter are in the right spiritual frame of mind to hear what he's going to tell them to do or, or how he's going to ask them to live differently than they're already doing or living. And, and if he starts out right, just right at the beginning by instructing them on the changes, the, the differences that need to take place in their lives, he knows there's a chance that they're not going to understand why he's telling them that, why it's so important. So he lays a foundation, and we have, for the last month, we've been walking through a study focused on it, and, and we could talk about it in a lot of different ways, but over and over what Paul's trying to, to say to them is, look, when you become a member of the church, 
you, you become a part of a new community and your relationship to all other communities, your, your family of origin, uh, the place you might work, the people you might know in, in other ways and, and have other relationships with, your relationship to Christ and your relationship to your, your fellow brothers and sisters in the church, it changes all of that. And no longer are you defined just by what you're, you're able to accomplish or do because Corinth was dominated by a culture of cutthroat competition where people were desperate to try to prove just how important they could be on their own, just how much they could, could accomplish through their effort. And more than that, they wanted to be known for it. They wanted to have you know, you know, people when they walked by whispering about, you know, I want to be like that person. I, I want to achieve what they've achieved. They, they wanted, in other words, a taste of fame. Paul says, look, that's not who you are anymore. The most important thing about you is not what you're able to do and what you can impress people with. It's the cross. The cross, Christ crucified is what defines you now. It's about what Christ does in you and through you that defines you. And the world may look at you and not see it for what it is, But it's real life. It's the only life worth having. Why would you keep chasing after any other way of life once you've tasted Jesus' way of life? That's what he keeps saying over and over in those first four chapters. And then he shifts to what biblical scholars call practical matters. He's got that doctrinal foundation laid. And then he says, okay, so now this is the difference it needs to make. Now, we've talked about this in this series before. It's really crucial for us to understand that in the New Testament, Paul is not only trying to teach us what to think, he's trying to train us how to think like a follower of Jesus. Because he knows that we're going to face situations that are beyond his imagining. Can you get your heart and mind wrapped around writing a letter to someone that people were going to be reading and studying 2,000 years later? How well would most of our letters, or our text messages, I should say, how would they age? You know, he's he's trying to bear in mind that that he can't just teach. If he was going to have to to answer every single conceivable question the church was ever going to come up with, you know, he'd have to still be alive and still writing that letter. So it's not just the content of what to think, it's the process of how to think. And what he's, he's hoping that they'll be able to do, and, and really, through the power of the Holy Spirit, what he's hoping you and I will be able to do is not just use the New Testament or the Bible as a reference guide where when we, we you know, find ourselves in a situation we don't know what to do, we start turning around trying to find the answer. Beyond that, he's hoping that we will, as a community, guided by the Spirit, be able to answer this question. What difference should Jesus' way of life death and resurrection make in this specific situation. That's that's what a, a follower of Christ is constantly wrestling with. Not what differences Jesus' way of life, death, and resurrection make generally or in some abstract way, but in this specific situation that I'm facing, that we're facing, how can we come up with new faithful answers together? Because we're going to have to keep coming up with new faithful answers together. And it's not just the question of, of what would Jesus do. That, that question is a part of this question, but this is actually bigger because it reminds us that, 
that Jesus is more than just what he does. It's also what he goes through. It's what he endures. It's the way that he even, as amazing as he is, trusts his life to God the Father in the same way that he's asking us to. And so what do we learn time and again when we we come back to the story of the gospel, of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection? And what kind of new perspective does that give us? What kind of insight does that give us in whatever it is we're going through? We never are going to reach a place where we stop asking this question. We're never going to get to a place where we've seen it all and we know exactly how to respond. We do know exactly that we want to respond like Christ, but we've got to pray about that. We've, we've got to go back to the story of Jesus. We've got to talk to our fellow brothers and sisters to figure out This is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm hearing as I seek God's guidance. What are you thinking? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? The church is not just some place we go to be given answers. The church is a a community of Christ followers who are trying to faithfully find new answers together. Now, what Paul realizes when he writes his letter to the, the church in Corinth is, they're still relatively new at this. So what they need for the rest of, of 1 Corinthians, right? So chapters 5 through 16, over and over and over again, he's going to answer this question with a bunch of different specific situations. And he's hoping that as they watch him work those problems, as they watch him try to see the situation through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, they'll start to pick up not just what he thinks, but how he thinks. So, because there are second graders and up in this room, we are not reading the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is strangely connected to the concept of Mother's Day, but... Not in a way that I want to spend a bunch of time connecting this morning. Okay? Uh, So I'll let you on your Bible app or in your Bible turn to it if you want to know. But it is a specific, icky situation. And it has to do with a male member of the church being in sexual sin that they all know about and they haven't dealt with. And Paul calls him on the carpet for it and says, I've heard about this situation. I know that you're all aware of it. Now, part of the reason he's saying this is, this church in Corinth, a large ancient city, has one church. One Christian community, probably of about 30 to 40 people at most, So this is not anything like most of the churches you and I have been a part of for a lot of our lives. This is a a small group that's too big, right? If you had a small group ministry, you'd say, hey, you guys have too many families in this small group. We need to break you up. That's the kind of church experience they have. So if somebody's got something going on in their life, it wouldn't take very long for everybody to know about it. And they're not dealing with it. And he says, why would you not deal with it? Because Jesus' way of life, death, and resurrection, it definitely addresses this situation. And this is the the response that he gives. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 9, 
He says, I wrote you in my earlier letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, I want to point out to you, you may not, you may have heard of this before, you may not know this. Paul references in 1 Corinthians an earlier letter and in 2 Corinthians another letter. So at the very least, we know Paul wrote four letters to the church in Corinth. We have two in our Bibles. Okay? We, we don't know a lot about what was in those other letters, but whatever was in them, it wasn't nearly as applicable as what is in First and Second Corinthians. Right? This, that's why we have Scripture. These, these words are applicable to us. So that's what he means when he says that. But I wasn't talking about the sexually immoral people in the outside world by any means. Or the greedy, or the swindlers, which that's just people who cheat to win. Or people who worship false gods. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world entirely. Now, I want to give you a little, I guess, quick lesson on how you read these letters, right? If we don't know all the circumstances, we try to piece them together. If Paul says, I wasn't talking about sinful people in the outside world that you should be paying attention to, you can assume that's because that's where they're paying attention. And they're not dealing with what's going on in their own family of faith. Right? He said, I don't mean that. You'd have to leave the world entirely. But now I'm writing to you not to associate. Now the word there, associate, we don't tend to use it. We we don't talk like that when we talk about relating to people. But the Greek is mix up together with or socialize closely with. You know, it's not associates, the way we use that term. Don't socialize closely with anyone who calls themselves brother and sister, who is sexually immoral, greedy, someone who worships false gods, an abusive person, a drunk by which he is attaching it to an abusive person. So, you know, the Bible talks about having an unhealthy relationship to alcohol in many places, but one of the key f- phrases that he's, ideas he's using here is somebody who drinks to excess, excess and is violent. Right? I guess the, the common term we would use, an angry drunk. Right? Someone's excessive drinking negatively hurting somebody else. Okay? So that's what he's talking about. Um, or a swindler, someone, again, who cheats to get ahead. Don't, don't eat together with anyone like this. What do I care about judging outsiders? We're back to this idea, right? And he's talking about it because it's what they're doing. What do I care about judging outsiders? Isn't it your job to judge insiders? God will judge outsiders. Expel the evil one from among you. Now, that, those are, that's a strong commandment, right? And it's Deuteronomy twenty-two twenty-one. 21. It's a direct quote. And it's... It's a way for them to realize that they are the covenant people of God, right? That's, that's who Deuteronomy is written to. And they need to be a counter testimony. They need to be a different kind of community that people in the world see and, and learn from by watching how they live their lives. If they're not different enough for people to notice it, then who are they helping? So let's go back to this notion of outsiders and insiders. Paul's pretty flippant here, where basically says, why would we even think about wasting time having negative feelings towards people who don't live like they're Christians because they're not Christians? I feel like Paul's saying, what do you expect? 
Why would you try to hold people to a standard that they haven't committed to? Of course they're, they're living lives that are centered on pursuits that Christ has revealed to us don't actually lead to real life. So why do you guys keep talking to me about how sinful the world is? That's what you should expect from the world. Let's talk about you for a minute. And that's when, you know, you get up and go to the bathroom or something during the sermon. (laughs) Right? Like, that's the uncomfortable, like, whoa, Paul. And scholars have, have decided that in all likelihood, the guy who's in this sinful situation is probably wealthy and important in Corinth. That's why they haven't called him on the carpet yet. I mean, we know that he does that, but man, he really raises our, our standing in the community. And Paul says, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. And again, why are you trying to get the world to see you as successful or powerful or important? That's not who the church is supposed to be in the life of the world. The church is not supposed to be convincing the world of how successful and amazing and important we are on the world's terms. The church is supposed to offer a counter option, a choice to say, you could live this way and think it's going to give you real life, or you could live this way and experience real life. The choice is up to you, but we want to be a living... You know, too often we get caught up in, I think... Have you ever heard of the term Christian evidences? It's like you, you're going to use the Bible and you're going to force the Bible into a, a cultural argument with science and all this other stuff. And I get it. I get why at times we want to prove to people that the Bible includes accurate scientific information. But that's not convincing evidence compared to you and your life. You're the evidence. I'm the evidence. And we've got to find a way to make sure that we understand that that's who we're supposed to be. Now, it turns out that trying to follow in the way of Jesus to experience that real life, even with God's help, is something that's really difficult for us. And, and if we turn church into a place where we're trying to convince other church members that we're actually following Jesus more faithfully than we really are, Church becomes institutionalized hypocrisy, which isn't saving anybody from anything, right? If church is a place you come and you, everybody knows we've got stuff and we're, and we're struggling and we're trying, to, we're trying more and more to become the people that we believe God can help us be, but, but we've got to have some place at church to be honest, not only about how far we've come, but also about how far we still need to go. If worship and our time at church is about us justifying ourselves, then why would we need a God to justify us? Worship that's about you and I proving that we've got it all together is false worship. Worship where we we gather together and we confess how far we still have to go and we're thankful for the patience and and the kindness And the goodness of God working in our lives. Now that's worship worth being a part of. That's worship you don't just experience. That's worship you participate in. That's what Paul wants for us, right? But here's what he says. When we start realizing the distance between who we promised to try to be and who we are right now, 
One of the ways that we can kind of alleviate that tension we feel is to say, yeah, but what about them? I mean, I got problems, but you ought to see my next door neighbor. Right? And Paul would say, I'm sorry, does your next door neighbor go to church with you? Because if he does, then he's your brother. And you guys need to have a talk. If he doesn't, what's wrong with you? You should expect people who belong to the ways of the world to live like they belong to the ways of the world. The problem I've got is we've got people who say they belong to the ways of Jesus who are still living like they belong to the ways of the world. That's where our problem is. Stop looking out there. You know, I, all the time I, I feel this tension in my own heart. It's so much easier to just shift the focus. If they were doing it 2,000 years ago in Corinth, you know this is not a new problem. But it is definitely not a problem that's gone away. One of the ways I can feel better about myself is to judge you. Better yet, if I judge you against the standard you haven't agreed to. Man, this is hard stuff. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, this is hard stuff. Right, but your mothers, the, the women in your life who have shaped you and raised you, whoever they are, at some level, they find ways to talk like this. <laughs> right? You know how many times Lauren and I have had moments when, when we have to confront one of our daughters about a situation? This happens more with my daughter who's actually helping in children's church right now. So she's serving and she's doing good things and she's a, she's a good person. But she thinks really fast. And if she figures out she's going to lose an argument, she will haul Riley, her older sister, into the argument no matter what. And I'm guessing it's because it's worked before. <laughs> and we do the same thing with God at times, right? We, yeah, but what about, but what about, but what? And Paul says, stop that. Now, I want to talk a little bit about ultimately this foundational truth, right? What he's saying here is, you're the evidence. And the best argument for the reality of Jesus is not to present it in a way that impresses the world through a speech or through a book or through any of that. The best way to reach the world is not through a carefully crafted logical argument. The best way to reach the world is by living alongside of people in the world and showing them that they really do have a choice. So what he's, what he's saying here is, People in the world will not start living like Christ unless they see people in the church faithfully living like Christ. They're not going to start living like Christ because we threaten them with hell. I mean, some of them might, but then we're going to have to help them be less scared of God. Right? And, and the reality is it's not about any of kind of the, the media approaches we tend to take. And we do that because we think we can reach more people faster, and I understand why we think that. But ultimately, if we're asking someone to change their way of life, they have to see that it's possible. 
Not theoretically possible, but actually possible. And the best way we do, we make the argument through our example, not through our explanation. That's where we make the, the argument. And, and so what, what Paul's saying is, look, when the church focuses on the moral lives of people outside of the church more than on the moral lives of people inside the church, we have an identity problem. He says, we're not set up to be judges of the world. Someone's already got that job, and it's not me, and it's not you, though I know we keep applying for the job. It's not us. God is the judge of the world. He says, what do we, don't waste time with that. Judge insiders, which again, it just feels like such a difficult thing to do when you talk about church, and we're going to dig into it a little bit, because it's so easy. You know, immediately, when I read uh, this section of 1 Corinthians, I go, yeah, Paul, but have you read Matthew 7, 1, where Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged? You need to read Matthew, Paul. I'm pretty sure Paul knew about Jesus saying that. And I don't think when Jesus says, you know, judge not lest you be judged, what he means is, hey, in church, we'll just be in collusion together. I won't judge you, you won't judge me, and we're all okay. That's not what Jesus meant. It can't be what Jesus meant. Jesus meant don't harshly condemn your brothers and sisters in the church. You don't want God to harshly condemn you, do you? Hey, harsh condemnation is a form of judgment. It's the worst form of judgment. It is not the only form of judgment. And the word for judgment that Paul is using in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is closely related to the word discernment. Now, discernment carries a different sense to it, doesn't it? Discern one another. You know where else you've heard that? In 1 Corinthians, when he's talking to them about taking communion, and he says what? discern the body. I think he's connecting back to 1 Corinthians 5 where he says, look, it's not your job to try to figure out everybody else's life in the world. I would like for you to try to figure out one another's lives, to discern, to look at the outcome of that person's life and to realize, look, there's a, there's a difference between people who've committed to living in a certain way and how serious we are in that commitment. Now, this is not about moral performance when I say moral lives. Because that's, that gets us back to hypocrisy, right? If I think I have to be perfect to be welcome at church, I'll lie about being perfect so that I can stay at church, or I'll just quit on church altogether. Okay, good thing is, that's not Jesus' idea of church. Jesus' idea of church is where we know one another well enough and we share our lives closely enough that somebody knows what we're going through, what we're struggling with, and if any of us get to the place where we're done struggling with the sin and we've just embraced it wholeheartedly, someone's got enough relationship with us to say, hey, um, I'm, we, we need to talk. And then we're actually going to listen because there's enough relationship to maintain it. This is where the way we do church is a little bit stacked against us. I've said this before, I'll say it again, one of the challenges of confession in a church this size is most people here only know you well enough to gossip about you at lunch after church. You don't confess as like a pound of flesh where you prove you're sorry, unless it's a public sin, understand that. For the most part, almost always in scripture, when they talk about confession, it's in the context of a heart-to-heart relationship where I confess to somebody who loves me and can help me with what I'm confessing. 
The other thing you got to bear in mind is this is a gathered church. So all the yous in the text we read are not you personally. It's, it's all of y'all in Texan. <laughs> when all of y'all gather together and all of y'all know this and all of y'all don't face this, then this is a problem for the gathered, assembled church. This is how the, the church needs to respond to this guy, which is really important. Because I don't think what Paul is saying is that every individual person in the church now has permission to judge this guy and give up on him. In fact, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, he has to say to him, hey, enough's enough. Let him back in. Which shows you that it's at least been 2,000 years since when you give church people permission to judge someone and kick them out, we excel. Paul has to say, uh-uh. The whole reason I asked you to do this, to, to create some distance between you and him, is there wasn't a church in every corner. There was one church in Corinth. And if he got asked to leave the gathered church, not every single relationship with every single person in the church, because you got to hope somebody went after him. Paul clearly wants them to go after him. He says, no, but when you gather together for the love feast, for, for the Lord's Supper, if he's going to live this way and call himself a brother, he can't be a part of that meal with you. Because he says he's trying to follow Jesus, but he's not. See the danger of hypocrisy? It threatens the existence of the church. And it, it threatens the witness of the church to the world, which means everything's at, at stake. I'm tired of listening to Christian people be surprised that the world is broken and headed in the wrong direction. Yeah, it's the world. This is church. And the more we talk about them, the less we have to face what's going on here. The more we talk about other forms of church or other congregations, the less we have to face what's going on here. When we freely allow people in the church to act in ways that are contrary to the way of Christ, we aren't just being nice. We are failing our brothers and sisters. We're failing to help them grow. We are failing, in other words, to love them. If I am aware that, this is different from a struggle with sin. This guy is flagrantly sinning and daring his Christian brothers and sisters to say anything about it. Okay, in that circumstance, Paul says you got to do something. You can't just look the other way. You can't just talk about this. The, the people in the world are, are worse than the people. That doesn't fix anything. You need to call this guy back to what he says matters most to him. Because that's what a loving, caring person would do. That's what a loving, caring church would do. And you know, with it being Mother's Day, it gives us a very clear definition. Love is such a big word, and we could mean a lot of different things with it. I want us to think this morning about the, the women in our lives who have given as much as they can for us, right? Those, those mother figures in our lives. How have they loved us? When they're in their best moments, how, how have they loved us? They have been willing to do anything they possibly can to help us be the best version of ourselves. And by the way, the best version of yourself is Jesus. It's not just anything. It's not anything the world tells us is the best version of ours. It's Jesus living in you. 
Paul calls it in his letter to the church in Colossae, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the best version of you. And that doesn't make it easy, right? It's a challenging thing for us many times to have someone we care about who has a deep relationship with us say, I care about you too much not to say something, not to, not to confront you with compassion. Now, too often, brothers and sisters, I think that we, we have experienced self-righteous condemnation at the hands of the church, and it makes us nervous to think in any way about loving someone enough to confront them with compassion, but it's possible And instead of deciding that it's impossible and then just putting off any form of conflict, Jesus shows us the way. Jesus regularly speaks truth to people he's in relationship with and calls them to something better for the sake of other people. It's never just for themselves, it's for the sake of the world, which is exactly what Paul's trying to do here. And you've seen it happen because people in their best moments are able to do this. I will never forget when I was first deciding that I wanted to preach, after a particular sermon, I was pretty full of myself. I mean, if I believed all the comments that people had made in the lobby, you know, it was like me and Billy Graham or something in terms of talent levels. This is a Church of Christ, so you know if they were reaching for Billy Graham as an example, they were running out of Church of Christ options, or so I told myself. And I was, man, I was feeling pretty full of myself. And I got into the family minivan, back when all the family minivans were Chrysler minivans. I got into it, and my mom just straight, directly looked at me. And she didn't like, you know how your mom can look at you? It's like she's looking through you into the recesses of your soul, and there's nowhere to hide. And she said to me, son, I hope you don't think that you should be a preacher because people tell you you're good at it. You should only be a preacher if you think God is calling you to it. And it was a quiet car ride home. We need people to love us that way. Don't we? And if we don't give anybody permission, even at church, to love us that way, or if we're so afraid of disappointing someone that, you know, he, he, Paul says, ask this guy to leave until he faces it. And the hope there, it's a mother's heart. Right? He's, he's saying, ask the guy to leave. I hope he'll wake up and come back home. If we're going to confront each other, we better do it with a mother's heart, with a mother's love, where the goal is not punishment or proving that we're right and the other person's wrong or proving that they don't have anything together and we have everything together or the sense that because we can point out their weaknesses, it makes us feel less broken. None of that. It's in the hope that that person will come back to their true best selves and come home, come back home to us. And we better send individual people out. We we better make sure someone's in a relationship with them. Obviously, someone who doesn't have the same struggle, someone who's not going to be pulled into that way of life, but somebody from here had better chase after them because the heart of God chases after us. And the church better chase out of that love, better chase everybody who we haven't reached yet. Sometimes it's our very own. I want to learn more and more how to love somebody in a way where I can tell them the truth and they feel my belief in them. 
not my disappointment in them. They feel my hope for them, not my frustration with them, where I speak the truth to them and they understand that I truly love them. If the church can do that, we can be made more and more the people we've promised to try to be. It's not about moral performance, but it is about a moral commitment. And if we're in here letting people be half-hearted in that commitment, we're not helping them, we're hurting them. And ultimately, Paul would say, you're not just failing them, you're failing the world. Because the world needs the evidence of people who believe in one another enough to confront one another with compassion. Happy Mother's Day. Let's stand together now and sing.